those of you that, that uh, are aware, uh, Houston was devastated this last week uh, with the floods that, that's happened down there with the, the amount of rain that, that we prayed against, but it's, it still hit, you know, with Hurricane uh, Harvey. And I'm reminded of this, Matthew 16, 18. Matthew 16, 18 is Jesus, and he's speaking to Peter, and he says this, and I tell you that, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The gates of hell will not overcome it. Hello, good morning. The rock that Jesus is teaching about building upon his church is not Peter the individual. The rock that Jesus is teaching on about building his church is Jesus. The rock that that he's teaching about about building his church is the body of Christ. And so when Jesus is teaching to Peter in this particular passage and all throughout scripture, the rock is the capital C church being built on Jesus. It's you and me. It's everywhere that we go, living our lives, serving and loving Jesus and loving our neighbors as ourselves. And so the video that we're going to show you that I'll send you a link to is a video of Houston. It's a video of the Woodlands, and it's a video of what's been going on down there. If you have been following Church Project, you know that we have a church project in the Woodlands, Texas. And uh, Tuesday night, this last week, they were receiving people that their homes were getting flooded. So literally going into the church project building and starting to live there. Until Wednesday morning when they woke up, the church project building started to flood. And so they had to get the, the, the people that were living there, displaced them somewhere else, and they sandbagged the building and started praying for it, only to find out, you know, by that afternoon, the water had stopped, and it had only stopped a few inches into the building, And because it's a simple building with concrete floors, they squeegeed the stuff out, no problem. And then they started receiving people back into the building. And so right now in Houston, we have Church Project who's housing a lot of people that have lost their homes. And not only that, they've become a central focus for receiving donations and feeding three meals a day and sending out donations. And one of the things they're doing right now is they are... Um, organizing the most important thing. I'll tell you about that in a second. They're organizing the most important thing, which is they're going into people's homes, which many of them in in the Woodlands uh, Church Project have lost their homes. So you're in two categories down there right now. You've either lost your home, or if your home is not flooded, there's 12 people living in your home. And so they're going right now to homes that were flooded, and they're cutting everything four feet down. They're taking all the sheetrock out, all the carpet. They're, they're gutting the bottom floors. Then they're going through with bleach, bleaching the studs and bleaching the subfloors and trying to get ahead of the mold. Because if they don't get ahead of the mold, the entire house is gone. So this is what they're doing right now. But I lived down in the woodlands when Katrina hit. I lived down in the woodlands when it was uh, it just rumors that a, that a hurricane was going to hit the woodlands. And I saw the devastations that, that happened down there. But I also know this. I saw the church come alive. Like, I, I saw the church come alive. 
I saw people that would, that would never go to church coming to church, and I saw the body of church come together. And if you've been following the social media for our church project down, down in that area, that you know they're calling out to house churches. They're saying house churches. If you're not part of one, get with one really quick. If you're part of one, rally together with your house church to serve your neighbors and friends. And we watched a New Testament church happening this last week as the building itself was flooded, but the house church, you couldn't kill it. That's why house church is so important, for one of about a thousand reasons why. So I was talking to Jason Shepherd today, the pastor down there, and asked him, what can we do? Can we go? Can we do? What do you need? Do you need a semi full of sheetrock? What do you need? And he said, the most important thing that we can do right now is that we can give. So I sent an email out saying, here's how you can give. Here's, you can give right now. You can text Harvey to that number uh, to give. That's pretty cool little technology. I'm not sure how that works. But right now, that's the best thing that we can do. They're inundated with people that are coming all throughout the world to help, and that's a wonderful thing. So we're just going to sit back. I don't know if we'll ever go down there, but the best thing that we can do right now is give. And I want to talk about money right now. Even our budget, Church Project Greeley budget, we're 25% behind what we project we would be right now at this time of year. Will God meet our needs? Absolutely. How? By all of us continually to give and to tithe faithfully here, but to go above and beyond that, especially in moments like this, we get to send our offerings and we get to go, this is the church and this is, we're going to give till it even hurts. So I'd encourage you right now, church, to really pray about what you could text and what you could give down to the Woodlands area. Um, Today, after the storm, and it would make a little more sense if the video, we could see that. Maybe, Elijah, if that ever loads, just let me know and we can play it. I'll pause, so um, it's a good video. But after the storm, after the blaming that's happening down there, atheists, agnostics, and casualists, I'll just call them casualists, and that's a category I made up, you know, for that that Christian that's just kind of casual and kind of goes through life, all are looking for meaning, all are looking for hope. He shows his love in and after the literal storms of this world. Jesus is there. He shows his love To us individually, he shows his love corporately to his church, and he shows his love to everyone, every individual where storms are happening in your life. So I don't know if it's a literal storm you're going through right now or an internal storm that you're going through right now, but I want to tell you this. Jesus' promises still stand. He is great and he is faithful. And his love never fails. So take courage and be strong. Whatever you're battling through, whichever you, whatever you've been through and whatever you're going through right now, his love never fails. He is not the storm. He is in the middle of the storm, calming and loving and directing you, directing you to himself. So let's continue to pray for the woodlands, Houston area. Let's continue to pray for the people around us that are hurting, that we wouldn't blame God, we would see God in the midst of the storms of our lives. I want to right now just 
I want to jump us into Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. And this is what we're going to teach on today. Just in sequentially, we're going through the book of Acts. And last week, we ended chapter 8. And we're coming into um, chapter 9 right now, which I think is such a perfect timing. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. If you do not have a Bible, there's a blue Bible sitting next to you, and you can open it up to page 633, and we're going to go through four verses today. It's going to be a quick message. Is that okay? No? You want me to go really long? It's going to be a really long message today. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked for, asked for the letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? More details of this story right here that we're we're reading about for the first time can be found. Uh, More details because Saul himself, his name is later changed to Paul, tells this story two different times in the book of Acts. This is the first we hear about it. The next time is Paul himself talking about the story, and it's in Acts 22, verses 3 through 21. And then later on, it's in Acts 26, verses 12 through 18. Paul is recounting his story. Saul is recounting his story of what happened to him. We are introduced now for the first time in the book of Acts to this man named Paul. Raise your hand if you've heard of Paul. Okay, very good. We're known right now as Saul, but Paul is born a Roman citizen. He, in his lifetime, received extensive Greek education while living in Tarsus. So he's a smart man. He's also a Jewish rabbi. He later on, after this conversion, lives his life, and he writes 13 of the 27 New Testament books that we have. Is this a big player? He's a a big player. And he's most responsible for the expansion of the gospel among the Gentiles, specifically because he's educated, he knows, he's one of them, and he can communicate the gospel message to a people that it might be foreign to, not quite Jewish. So Paul, I would encourage you, if you like character studies, and I'm saying the right person this time, study Paul. Go, go grab Paul and find out like, how much God used him and where he came from. But if you're here for the first time and just now hearing about Saul, let me give you a little cliff note. Here's the cliff note. The guy just a few verses early was killing, earlier was killing Christians. And he's on his way to do so even more. So it's unfair that we know the end of the story right now. But in your mind, just, just kind of put that he's not a Christian yet, okay? And in verse 1, let's look in verse 1. He says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked for the letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So we see in verse 1 right now that in this chapter, um, as, as Paul and Saul is teaching uh, to Christians at large, 
This is one of the things that he talks about. He says that right now uh, the uh, Christians are known as disciples. So we see that in verse 1. He's known as disciples. Later on in verse 2, Christians are referred to as what? Referred to as the way. So we're known right now, Christians are known as disciples, and Christians are known as the way. And then later on in in, in the chapter, it goes through, and in verse 13, refers to Christians as the saints. And in verse 17, refers to Christians as brothers. So this thing is so new right now. What's happening is so new right now that they don't even know what to call it. Saul is on his way, and they're talking about disciples. They're talking about people of the way. They're talking about saints. They're talking about brothers. And Saul goes to the high priest, which is the Sanhedrin, and he basically asks for a letters of extraction. What he wants to do is he wants to go up to Damascus, and what he wants to do is he wants to find Jewish Christians that have fled Jerusalem, and he wants to arrest them and bring them back. So he's a politically connected man that finds a way to kill Christians. So he gets this letter, starts heading north, because his intent is to arrest and kill Christians. That's verse 1. You probably already knew all that, but I'll just point it out. And in verse 2, Damascus, if you're looking at the map of the area, you'll find Jerusalem. Jerusalem is about 150 miles north of Jerusalem. So this is how irate Saul is at this point. He's willing to travel by foot 150 miles to find these people that have fled so that he can arrest them and he can punish them or kill them. And to, I think, maybe give a little more uh, emphasis behind what Luke is writing here as he's writing this, you see in verse 2 that he also is, he is breathing, he's snorting, He has on a rampage, but he's also arresting women. Notice that. Like, it's not just the men. He's arresting everyone. If you're breathing and you're a Christian, you're going to get arrested. So have we set a pretty good stage here in verse 1 and 2? Then we come to verse 3. As he is nearing Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Remember a couple weeks ago when we had the eclipse? And the moon passed in front of the sun and blocked out all the light. Okay, reverse that? Is there, is there, even, is there even a part on earth that we know scientifically where a sun, there's something brighter than the sun? Is there? And so reverse it, because this is what happens. Like The opposite of the eclipse Um, what we witnessed a couple weeks ago, this event took place around noon. This is in the afternoon. And so on the road, there was a light that was brighter than the sun. Then in verse 4, he heard a voice. This is pretty fantastic when you hear he heard a voice. I want to read what one commentarian said about heard a voice, okay? And this is Robert Utley when he's referring and talking about Saul hearing a voice on the road to Damascus. And he says this, Robert Utley says this, this heavenly voice was something Judaism was familiar with. It is known as a ba-kol. This provided a means for the Jews to receive information and or confirmation from God during the interbiblical period between the closing of Malachi 
and the beginning of the ministry of John the Baptist. This form of revelation was necessary because there was no inspired prophets during this time. So Saul's familiar with this, and, he's, and, and this is one way that, that he is used to, and people are used to God speaking, and so it's not absolutely foreign to him when it happens. But notice what happens when this light comes, and, and um, he hears a voice, okay? Look in verse 4. He says, he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul, Saul. When was the last time someone came up to you and said, Tim, Tim. Hey, Tim, Tim. What does that mean? It means attention. Like, I'm not just saying one time, Aaron, Aaron, Saul, Saul. Like, it's repeated. And so, Saul, Saul, Aaron, Aaron, why are you persecuting me? Reminds me of Matthew 10, 40. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. This is not an individual address. It's an intimacy between Jesus and his church. And so as Saul is on his way to persecute, Saul is on his way to kill and destroy, he's interrupted by a light that's brighter than the sun and heard from, from a voice that repeats his name twice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Me referring to his church at large. And it's an intimate connection between Jesus and his church. Saul was a devoted Jewish, Jewish law-abiding, scripture-knowing man of God, on the way to clean up the mess made by the way. He sees the way and people that are serving Jesus as going against tradition. And Saul, I believe, out of the kindness of his heart and devotion to scripture and his education, he's going and he's so driven because the people of the way are introducing something that he doesn't believe is right. And he's encountered on the road by a light and a voice and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And at that moment, what he saw that day turned everything he knew about Scripture upside down. That moment, what he encountered on that road completely and utterly changed his perspective on people, on life, on everything. I believe what he encountered on that day was book knowledge turned to street knowledge. He knew it all. He knew all the rules. He knew all the regulations, but his heart was far from it, and that was the most important piece. So on the road to Damascus, God interrupts him and changes his book knowledge into street knowledge. Two weeks ago, I was able to rent some mo- a, a, a motorcycle and ride with a couple guys, Chad Harding, who I won't tell you how fast he went on his crotch rocket, and Jay, who's shaking his head because he saw how fast Chad went on his crotch rocket, and then me on my lazy boy Indian, Indian motorcycle, like the biggest one you can get. I'm talking heated grips. That's nice. Especially when you were freezing. I was like, this is great. Heated seat. That was nice. Like, turn that up. A little too hot. A little too, like, get it just right, right? I had a windshield. You could push a button, and it would go up. 
or go down. The radio, the GPS. I'm still talking about her motorcycle. Like, it was nice. It was nice, huh? You should have written it. (laughs) So, one of the things on motorcycles, if you've ridden them, and it's a little bit on bike as well, especially if you're doing downhill racing and such, is when you go into a turn, your natural tendency is just to lean with the turn. And to just, to just go with the flow. And, and, and that's good to a degree until you're an aggressive rider like Chad. Jeez, he's alive. Let's thank God today. No. <laughs> I couldn't go as fast as you. But. So when you're on a motorcycle, if you lean into the turn, that's the natural way to do it. But especially if you're getting into aggressive driving, they have a thing called counter-steering. And counter-steering, instead of going leaning with the turn, you actually are taking your steering wheel and moving it against the turn, which, does that make a lot of sense? Not really. But you lean, you, you turn against the turn, and you, you shift your body weight this way. And so instead of going this way on, on your lean, you turn it and sit upright, and it causes your bike to go this way even quicker. That doesn't make sense to be able to do something like that. You can know all about how to turn on a motorcycle, but until someone teaches you counter-steering, it just doesn't make sense to you. It seems completely foreign. You wouldn't think, I'm going to turn my wheel this way to turn this way. It just doesn't make sense. Think about in your life in those moments and times when something just clicked. It's like, I got it. Like, I get it. And here I think we see one of the most important I get it moments of all time. And it's Saul on the road to Damascus when his book knowledge turns to street knowledge. The realization of who I was as I became a Christian was my awakening. I remember sitting in a church as the pastor was talking about this place called hell and I just got very scared. And I realized that if heaven and hell was, I was going to be there because of my actions, I realized that my actions weren't good enough. So my first encounter at a young age was realizing who I was. And then I think it was years, years later, it switched from looking at me to awakening who Jesus is. And I believe that was the moment that I really, really got it. Like it wasn't that moment that I was just scared to death about hell and didn't want to go there. I believe that was God prodding me to years later when I awoke to realize this has nothing to do about me. It has everything to do about Jesus. And as I'm looking at how Saul encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus is the opposite of my experience. Like he's on his way to kill Christians. And suddenly he's encountered by the man Jesus God. And then later you're going to see as then he realizes who he is. But he's first introduced to this man, Jesus. And in this story that we're reading about here, God drops Saul to the ground and then rebuilt him. And later, Paul, this is Saul, writes this about his experience. He says this in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. This is Paul writing about what he's experiencing here. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Can you see later how 
when Paul is writing about God, he's using these descriptive words as let light shine out of darkness. The first he encounters the love of Jesus in his life is on the road to Damascus. And after God drops him to the ground, he rebuilds him. See in this passage that Saul is brought to his knees. But what do you also see there in the end of verse 4? He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? As Jesus in your life drops you to your knees, and I believe in Houston in a lot of ways right now, people are on their knees, devastated, lost material things, maybe family members even. He gets your attention. These devastating things get your attention, don't they? Saul on his knees, God got his attention. But what happens next? He whispers his name and says, Saul, Saul. I've got your attention. Now listen what's coming next. Next week we'll get into verse, verse five as to what happens after God has got his attention and what's gonna happen. But I wanted to pause right here because Saul was going about his educated, experienced, passionate, focused, professional way in life. He knew what he was doing. He was an achiever. He was educated. He was positioned well. He was going about his life on target for what he believed um, his mission in life was. Until what? Until this road in Damascus. Until. Until he encountered the love of Jesus Christ. So until the road, he didn't know. Until the road, he didn't know. Now I want to personalize it a little bit for us. Until the flood, I didn't know. I bet there's people at Houston saying this right now. Until the flood. Man, that was hell to live through. But years from now, I bet there's people that are going to look back and go, until the flood, I just didn't know. But after the flood? And Paul saying, until the road, I just didn't know. But after the road? Until that cancer... I just didn't know. But after the cancer? Until jail? I just didn't know. But after jail? Until the market crashed? I just didn't know. But after the market crashed? Until that hard thing in life happens, maybe you just don't know. But oftentimes, like Saul, who found himself on his knees on the road to Damascus, it's only Jesus that's showing him his love. And from this point forward, we saw a man, we see a man, and we begin to study a man who, until the road, he just didn't know. But after the road, God rebuilt him to beautiful, beautiful stuff. Saul, his life, all the facts of his, the facts of his life, the things that I mentioned just briefly, and when you go and do a character study on Saul, you'll find about a million other facts about Saul and Paul. That, equaling his story, points to Jesus. 
Aaron Havens, all the facts and things that you know about me, the things I'll reveal to, uh, to you about me, whatever it may be, that, the good, the bad, the ugly, everything, finding Jesus is my story. And yours is the same. Whatever you're going through is on purpose, and God is getting your attention And he's saying, I'm faithful and I am good. Don't doubt my character and my love. Because after that, after that thing you're going through, after the road, it's good. Love the Lord your God with all your being and love your neighbor as yourself. We want to boil this down. Love the Lord your God with all your being and love your neighbor yourself. Church, I am so honored and humbled to be able to, to be your pastor and to lead us in the areas that I've never been and that you've never been. I don't know how to do this thing called a project called life. I, I don't know how to bring all the church together, the body of Christ, and to lead us in unison. And I, I've never done this. Because it's today for the first time. I may have been doing it for 20 years leading up to this, but we're going into the unknown. And I don't know what God has for each and every one of us, but I do know when I think about the collective C church, the church at large throughout the world, and I think about all of us making up that church, I can stand and with boldness say this our God is faithful. Our God is good. Like he's going to push back the flood waters in your life. Any darkness that you're experiencing, he pushes it back. Individually, we're going to get picked off. Corporately and together, we lock our arms and we march forward just declaring how good God is. Even when the world around us is in a flood. I want to pray for us today. I don't know what you're processing with this message. But I believe this that God and the Holy Spirit can speak to you specifically in this message. So if you would, just close your eyes and just think on this. God, I, I pray in this place that your love would be thick. God, I guarantee there's people in this room that we are going through floods. Maybe some literally floods, maybe some dark, dark floods that no one knows about. God, your promises still stand. God, great is your faithfulness. God, you've never failed me. pray in this room today that if there's anyone holding on to their life harder than we should God that we would let it go that we would trust you that we would trust you with the good things in life the things we're proud of but we would also trust you in the, in the bad things in life and the pain and the hard stuff God we don't like it we don't enjoy it but we know your word says you're good and you're faithful so would you show that to us Would you help us through these moments?
when Satan begins to whisper that you're not good, God, and that you're not faithful, may we stand against that with Scripture and say, no, my God is good. My God is faithful. He is love. He is just. He is hope, not despair. He's not the storm. He's in the storm. And he's loving. He's drawing people to himself. So God, draw us all to you today. Help us trust you with everything going on in our life. May this life not be lived for Aaron Havens. May it not be lived for ourselves, but may it be lived for you. God, if it takes dropping us to our knees on the road as we go about our life casually, then drop us on the knees of our road. And may we hear your voice and may we see your light. And may when we return and get to our feet, may we go a different road. May we serve and love. Love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, strength, and love our neighbors as ourselves. God, if there's anyone here stuck in casual, nominal Christianity, would you awaken us to greatness? Would you unite your church to be a capital C church that when there's devastation, physical devastation around, the church is the only thing standing. We are the hope. We have the answer. And God, may we walk in that today.